0: The Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. And I'm going to be reading 20 verses. This is God's Word. Again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and his teaching... Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30 fold and 60 fold and a hundred fold this is the word of the Lord Please lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. Lord, we pray that we would receive this, your word, as life to us. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us. We pray that you would put your finger on the error in our ways, the sin in our hearts, the brokenness in our minds, and that you would help us to hear, to repent, to believe, and to act. We pray, Father, for your blessing, that we would listen Attentively and that you would give grace to me as I seek to preach your word Lord we we ask for your blessing in this time that your spirit will be active and that Jesus would be the true preacher We pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated A few months ago our family took a trip to Williamsburg, Virginia to visit this historic place in our country we had uh, we had a great time together as a family um, going and visiting a lot of the, the sites in and, and some of the little houses and, and shops that were that were there in, in the colonial part of Williamsburg. And um, the way they have it set up, it's almost like you take a, a trip back in time, you, you, you can walk into the shop of, of a blacksmith and, and see how metal tools and horseshoes were made. You could walk into the shop of a tanner and see how leather used to be made. But one that really got my attention uh, was when we walked into the shop of a weaver to see how textile fabrics were made. Now, when we walked into the weaver's shop, we saw lots of different color of thread or lots of spools of thread, various colors that they had spread around in there. And then what you saw was this device called a loom. And the loom is a device that is essentially there for the purpose of of putting the strings in tension, so that they're in a position for the weaver to interweave them together in order to create a fabric. That's the purpose of the loom. It puts the strings in tension so that the weaver can weave the various colors of string together to create a fabric. Now, just because you had different colors of thread in the shop didn't mean that you would come out with a textile necessarily. You could have grabbed a bunch of those threads and thrown them down in a pile, but that would not leave you with a a textile fabric. These strings had to be put under the tension of the loom and intentionally woven together by the weaver in order to create a textile fabric. And once those separate threads were woven together as a textile fabric, they were far more useful than they ever were by themselves. Once those separate threads were woven together into a a textile fabric, they were something stronger than they were by themselves. Once those separate threads were woven together as a textile, they became something more beautiful than they were. On their own. Many Christian people, many professing Christians would say that they that they value community. I value community and particularly as it's expressed in cross-cultural diversity. Many people would say that they want to be useful to God, that they want to live more powerful lives for God. Many people would say that they, that they want to, to live a more beautiful life before God and their neighbors. However, those same people would express apprehension about trusting the authority and reliability of the word of God to tension. But here's the deal. All of these things are the result of God's word. Believed God's word, valued God's word, obeyed and God's word spread. That's the only way usefulness increases. It's the only way that power increases and beauty increases. It's the only way that that community is really formed. And here's why. This is God's way with his people. God takes us as separate threads and he holds us under tension by his word. And and this puts us in a position where he can interweave our separate lives and separate loves and longings together into one beautiful fabric. This is what God is doing with his word. And just because you have lots of different colored people in a room does not mean you have a textile. You can throw a bunch of people together of different political perspectives and different ethnicities and socioeconomic brackets. But just because you throw them together doesn't mean you're actually going to have a textile. Each and every one of us needs to be put under the tension of God's word so that we are in a position to have our lives woven together by God, the weaver. Each of us has to be in the word of God, held in tension by God's will, by God's wisdom, by God's correction and God's grace. And once we're woven together as a textile, listen, we become more useful than we ever would have been on our own. Once we're woven together as a textile, we become more powerful than we ever would have been on our own. Once we're woven together as a single textile, we become more beautiful than we ever would have been on our own. But the key for this morning is that none of this happens apart from the Word. None of this happens apart from the Word of God. So we're going to get into our passage today and we're going to approach it through two points. We're going to see the tension and the textile. All right? We're going to see the tension and the textile. And we open up our passage and again, Jesus is teaching a diverse group of people. Uh, They're in different places on the spectrum. And there are so many people that have gathered to Jesus that they have to actually put Jesus in a boat and take him offshore a little bit to create the acoustical environment so that so many people could actually hear what he was saying. And Jesus calls out for their attention and he begins to teach them a lesson through this this parable. And he chooses an image. Jesus, as the master teacher, he chooses an image that would have been very accessible to them. It was an agrarian image and and everyone there would have been familiar with the process of farmers going out and throwing seed over a field. Now, the way that it worked back then is as they didn't plow the field before they scattered the seed that came after and they would have pathways that would go through the fields. And as you scattered the seed, some seed would fall on the pathway. Some would actually land over here. Uh, In good ground, some of it would land and grow up with weeds. The image was so accessible and so familiar to them. And Jesus begins to drive in this parable, this teaching to his people about the kingdom and about what it means to belong. But why? Why does Jesus bring his disciples under the tension of his word? I think when we look at verse 14 and we scan down. We get the, the private explanation that Jesus gives to a smaller group. And here's what we learn. The specific thing that Jesus is trying to do is introduce attention into your life. I know we spend most of our lives trying to escape tension. But this is one of the specific things that Jesus always does by his word. His word always comes in and creates tensions in the lives of sinful people. He comes in and says, no, this is not a viable way of being. This is the way of life. No, that's not a viable way of thinking. This is the way you have to renew your mind. No, that's not a viable way of relating to your enemies. You have to relate to enemies like I do. He comes in and what it does is it creates a tension in your life. Am I gonna go this route or am I gonna go the way of life? Am I gonna choose life or am I gonna choose death? He always intends to create attention tension in people. Jesus does not often easily resolve tensions for people. He wanted to sit with us because it's in the tension that that we are formed. It's in the tension that we are formed. And so he gives them this word and he begins to explain the parable. Once we get down to verse 14, he says the sower sows the word. He's talking to a smaller group. He's explaining this parable and he's talking about the word of the gospel specifically. The announcement of his kingdom. This is the theme of the entirety of Scripture. But what Jesus is saying relative to the word is he's talking specifically in this context about the announcement of the kingdom, the word of the gospel, the good news that that God is the king and that the king is coming to restore his his broken world, his rebellious subjects to himself. This is the word. And And in verses 14 through 15, we get this this statement. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And and I want you I want you to remember right now at this point, I want you to remember where we started. in Mark chapter one, verses 14 through 15. That's where we started this series on the kingdom of God. And I want you to remember what Jesus was out to do through the entirety of his ministry. So Mark, chapter one, verses 14 through 15, say Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this parable, y'all, just to be clear, is all about our response to the gospel, to the announcement of the saving work of Jesus Christ, to the announcement of Jesus as the king. That's what this parable is all about. And here's the important thing I want you to hear, friends. It's not just about the way you responded to the gospel a long time ago. It's about the way that you're responding to the gospel right now. It's not about your repentance and faith a long time ago. It's about your repentance and faith right now. The all of life repentance that we're supposed to be about. Every time that you hear the gospel preach, every Sunday morning when I'm scattering seed. How do you respond the gospel that's the point of jesus message our response to the announcement that god has done something to restore his broken world and the broken people within it specifically through his son jesus christ it's about a king and a kingdom and it's about subjects and it's about what those subjects do when the king makes overtures of love and pardon do you receive it do you believe it our response to this word is the ground upon which we will be judged by King Jesus. I want to say that again. The ground of our judgment before King Jesus will be how we respond to this word. And I know that many people are fond of saying, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. And what is always happening in my head when I hear someone say that is is this. And that's a comfort to you. You would rather be judged by God than by me. That is scary for people who have the issues we got. That is unnerving. That should make you unravel. Unless you know that you're responding to the word by which you will be judged with faith and love and repentance. This is the word by which we'll be judged. Judged. And it's sobering. This is a call by Jesus to soberly take inventory of your own soul. You can fool us in here. You can fool us. You can put on the ruse. You can do Christian things. You can put on appearances. You can talk the lingo. And all the while, your heart is chasing after that idol you love so dearly. All the while, you have the, not even the faintest Hint of love for God. You can fool people in here, but like like the old timers used to say, just because you're standing in a garage doesn't mean you're a car. (laughs) And just because you come to church doesn't mean that you are in his kingdom. So each and every one of us, I don't care how long you've been going to church. I don't care how much theology, you know, I, I don't care how many how many deeds you've done. Each and every one of us has to check Our hearts. We have to take sober inventory of where our hearts are. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do. And then he begins to take us on a journey through this story. Through this story, through this teaching, he tells tells us about the conspiracy to keep us from being anything but fruitful. There is a pool, it's a gravitational pull. Of being in this broken world as a broken person, there is a pull and there's a conspiracy to keep us fruitless. You, now, I want you to hear something clearly success does not equal fruit. Just because you're successful in your vocation doesn't mean that you're fruitful. Uh, having lots of stuff does not mean that you're fruitful. Being liked by a lot of people does not mean that you're fruitful. What Jesus is specifically identifying here are three primary challenges that we face when it comes to being fruitful. Through this parable, Jesus alerts us to the fact that the word can land in your life without producing the intended fruit. Now listen, listen how accessible this is. Jesus knows his audience. There is not a single person in that audience who would have been ignorant of the fact that there was one outcome in this parable that was acceptable to the farmer. And that was the one that produced fruit. Nobody goes out and does all that work, scatter a seed, only to be you know, satisfied with zero fruit. That's not why seed is scattered. And that's not why gospel is preached. That's not why kingdom is announced. God wants no less than the farmer, because he's given no less work and effort and sweat than the farmer. God wants fruit. God wants fruit. But Jesus offers this up to us, not only as a diagnostic for our own hearts, for identifying where we are, but as a warning and an invitation. It's a diagnostic, where are you right now? It's a warning, take heed. And it's an invitation draw near hear receive, repent, believe, call out so let's let's look at this there are three challenges that Jesus then presents to those who are hearing three challenges and they go in this order the devil, the world and the flesh what is conspiring to render you fruitless? the devil, the world, and the flesh. What is the greatest threat to your fruitfulness and your kingdom vitality? The devil, the world, and the flesh. That makes the battle clear. Okay? What are you up against? The devil, the world, and the flesh. This is a classic trio in Christian theology to help us identify the nature of our opposition. So let's look at the first one. The devil. Verse 15. Check it out. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. The devil. Now listen, here's the deal. There's a pendulum swing within Christianity. Some people give him too much press. And some people don't give him enough. And if I had to guess, most of us in here don't give him enough credit. We we don't give enough attention to the nature of the battle that he's waging against us. We, we, we downplay it. But ever since Genesis 3, his point of attack on God's people has always been the word. Because if he can get the word away from you, if he can render the word inaudible to you, if he can render the word tasteless to you, he has won. That's all he has to do. And that's all that he had to do in order to throw this world into ruin and chaos. That is the primary thing that he accomplishes in Genesis 3. And look at the world of pain that's brought into this world. And you think less pain is brought into your life, less ruin is brought into your life when you let go of the word? It's It's of the same species. We can see the ugliness of Genesis 3, but in microcosm, that's exactly the kind of ruin and detriment that comes into your life when the enemy attacks your trust in and obedience to the word. No matter how you shine it up. No matter how you put lipstick on that pig, this is the ruin. And it's particularly aimed at our trust in the gospel. That's when Satan brings out special forces to attack your faith in the gospel. He would love nothing more than for you to believe things about the Bible without seeing the central theme of the Bible, which is the grace of God and Jesus Christ. To believe in basic morality and the Ten Commandments, that's probably a pretty good idea. And, you know, being decent to one another and being nice to folks, you know, that's probably all good. That's probably basically what the Bible says. We should be nice to each other and and God lets good people in heaven. No, that's that's what one sociologist called moralistic therapeutic deism. This is this general nice God who deals with generally nice people who need just a little bit of pick me up, a little bit of tweaking. You got to watch the point of attack of God's word in your life. If you are no farther down the road in your grip on, your knowledge of, and obedience to God's word than you were last year, beware. Beware. Now, here's the thing Jesus doesn't say exactly how the enemy does it. How exactly does he snatch the word away from you? Jesus doesn't specify. He doesn't tell us exactly how the enemy does it. He just raises awareness about this active enemy who's doing everything in his power to render you fruitless. Does he just throw lots of distractions in front of you? Does he does he just. Get you to live that casual, slow, gentle road to destruction. Jesus doesn't specify. Is it is it unbelief that he leads you to nurse? Does he fan the flames of cynicism and self-righteousness? Or is it a lifeless, spineless, Christless religiosity that he encourages you to find contentment in? Again, Jesus doesn't spell it out. He simply presents it as one way in which the message falls on the hearts of some and yields no fruit. And here's a pastoral encouragement to you. I want you to leverage this idea that I've talked about before, C.S. Lewis screw tape letters. And I want you to ask yourself this question. If you were your greatest enemy, what would you do to you in order to render you fruitless? What would you do to you? Would you get you so proud of your worldly accomplishments? So caught up on your own press clippings? That you've got no time for the lesser things like Christian community and you know being a part of God's people and and really steeping yourself in the Word and being a regular part of worship would that be what he does to you? Would it be that he beats you down so badly with your sin and your failure that you're so ashamed that you don't even want to darken the doors of the church? How would your enemy get you if you were your greatest enemy, knowing yourself like you do? What would you do to render you fruitless? Getting you to live the busy life under the auspices of doing important things. Think on that. Take that into some personal reflection time. In verses 16 through 17, Jesus moves on to the next challenge. This is what it says. These are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy and they have no root in themselves. But endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. Immediately they fall away. Jesus moves from the devil to the world. Now you need to appreciate that the, the term world is used differently throughout scripture. Sometimes the world just means all that God created and called good and values. Sometimes world means uh, that God rejecting society or social dynamic a system that is set in opposition to God the kingdom of this world and that is what he's referring to in this passage you remember that old way that the folks would say you know you're being worldly that's the sense of, of the world in this passage that system the kingdom of this world that is set in opposition to God the God rejecting environment and its antagonism to the message of the gospel now I want you to notice how this soil is described in this passage by Jesus He says they had he, they received it with joy at first uh, they had warm feelings and, and 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 warm fuzzies toward God at first they were active in the church and serving and and learning about God's word and fired up about growing in their faith and reading and getting nourished at first At first. And what Jesus is saying is that you cannot bank on what you did back in the day for right now. You cannot rely upon where you went to church back in the day for right now. You can't rely upon community you had back in college when all you and your peoples were tight and be isolated right now. You try to rely on community that you got to call a thousand miles away and you can't live faithfully right now in the community where you've been situated. He's looking at a good start, but Jesus isn't interested just in how you start. It's about how you finish. It's like that Kenyan runner, that marathon runner who had a breakdown physically during the marathon and it took him forever, but he kept on running and he kept on running. And he took like three times the amount of time that the other runners took. And when they interviewed him afterward, they said, why'd you keep on going? He said, because my country didn't send me 1,500 miles to come over here to start the race. They sent me over here to finish the race. And God has done his work in your life. And he's given you his words so that you'll finish the race. Not just to get you started in the race. We have to have a persevering spirit. A persevering love. That's, that's what Jesus is driving at here. They had... Joy at first, but then look at what Jesus says, actually hindered it. But the hostile environment of the culture pressed in with such intensity, specifically on account of this countercultural message, that they fell away. They fall away. The word used here in Greek is skandalizontai. That's where we get the word scandal. They were scandalized by association with Jesus. You're one of those people. You're one of those Christians. You're one of those people that eats Chick-fil-A. I say hallelujah, I will endure for that holy chicken. Bless his name. You can hate me all you want. And I'm gonna double fist them sandwiches. You get what I'm, I'm saying, it's the culture wars. And these people had joy at first, but then they wither when they come under the heat of cultural affliction, cultural resistance. Why? Why, though? Look at the text, because they have no root, because they have no root. Rocky ground. They shoot up fast at first. They got no root and that's the end of them. They wonder. Here's how I would imagine it would play today. They wander into morally perilous beliefs. They accept false teachings that are biblically foreign. You can see this person doing everything possible to harmonize the Bible with what's culturally popular or academically acceptable teaching blending with in-vogue social practice because it makes life easier and it relieves the pressure of nonconformity and and cultural, cultural marginalization. I'm just gonna blend it. You know, there's an old word for what that is in religion and it's called syncretism. Syncretism, think about it like when you sync your phone up with your computer. You're putting them on the same page to get them connected. Syncretism is when you try to get your faith on the same page with the way the world thinks. Uh And you sync them. You you put them together. But what you do is you lose everything that is Christian. That is distinct. The essence of the faith. You lose it when you blend it. Just to relieve the pressure of nonconformity. Just so we can avoid the public shaming of the culture if we simply... Just adjust. We can avoid that. We can still get the applause of the culture. They will still cheer us on. But I want you to see that the culture's appetite is voracious. They will not be content until you lose every vestige of your distinct faith. So don't keep on giving with the idea that somehow you dress it up and then, you know, we're going to bring them to faith in Jesus. No, you've surrendered everything that is distinct about Jesus. When you dumb him down and make him palatable and easy to trust, easy to accept. Jesus is dangerous to worldly ways of living. Jesus isn't out to fix your life in Egypt. He wants to free you from Egypt. He's not trying to help you manage life in chains. He wants you to get out of those chains. He comes to break them. And when we dumb down the distinctiveness of who we are as God's people and what we believe as Christians, all we're doing is helping people to manage life in Egypt. I'll, I'll move on from that a little bit. This is the thinking of those in whom the gospel has not taken root. It's not, it's not, it starts off well, it starts off good. It starts off with good intentions sometimes, but it's fear at the bottom of this is a fear and it's an ignorance of what Jesus said. There's no room in their minds for these words of Jesus. The world will hate you because it hated me. You realize people only like Jesus in as much as they have a false view of Him. You realize that, right? We've talked about this before. They got, they got the a side of Jesus. They don't got the B side of Jesus. They're only listening to one side of the record, Jesus accepting the sinner, Jesus moving toward the broken, Jesus having relationships with the scandalous. They don't want the other side, the, the, the invasive side of grace. They don't want the side of grace that says you must commit. You can't be a flake. They don't want the side of Jesus that says, I'm out to evict all the sin in your heart. I'm out to make you someone who is who has integrity and moral uprightness. They don't want that side of Jesus. They have a half version of Jesus, which is which is why. Which is why we we trip up so often. We're we're afraid as well, because we have a half version of Jesus. We struggle. Jesus said the world. Don't be surprised if the world hates you because it hated me first. Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. And just what do you think Jesus was talking about? He was framing that up all in the context of the opposition he was facing as he was going to the cross. People did not like, you know, Jesus, the more and more he preached, the smaller and smaller his his congregation got. Don't get it twisted. Jesus wasn't speaking at the gospel coalition. Jesus wasn't speaking out together for the gospel because people got tired of the way that his word cut against them in order to heal them. They got tired of his surgical way of bringing the word to to cut off the stuff that would kill you. They got tired of that. Jesus says, look, why is the word of Jesus so hard and, and why must we not surrender it? Here's why. Jesus says, I tell people they are sick and only I can heal them. I tell people they're under bondage and only I can free them. I tell people they are guilty and only I can exonerate them. I tell people they are wrong and only I can correct them. I tell an optimistic culture that they are hopeless and helpless without me. I tell the world that the world is the problem, but I am the savior of the world. You must listen. You must receive the offense of the gospel. If you're going to experience the defense of the gospel. The word of God, you must receive it and it must offend you. Yes, you are jacked up. You are bad. No, you're not trying your best. You're, all you're doing is trying to pretty up yourself to appear well before other people. It's the same thing that I do. That's Our problem is far worse than we imagined. It must offend you. And when you let it offend you and you receive it as the very word of God and you place your trust in that word, then then he defends you from the accusations of the evil one, from your own failure and shame and guilt and fear and brokenness. Time and time again, that's the deal. I want you to see that we must receive the offense But this is the way the world works on us. How is the world working on you? How's it working on you? Just be honest, confess it. And then how are you leaning against it? What particular practices are you picking up? What particular practices are you laying down? Here's here's, here's a little word for you. If you were repenting of this five years ago, or you were talking about this five years ago, And you're not making any concrete changes to actually address it. Then you're not really repenting. I know it's a hard word, but it's the word of Jesus. And that's why I like letting him say it for me. And I need it. It cuts against me every bit as much as it cuts against any one of you. Because no one is more tempted to want to. Just refashion the message to make it just a little bit more easy to swallow than me. And that's the temptation. And those are the, a lot of the people that you see going off most frequently the preachers. There are two documentaries that just came out about preachers with big flocks who did that and led thousands away in their wake. Why? Noses and nickels. More people, more money. I'll compromise just to get anybody to get it out. I just want to fill those empty places in the bench. I am not exempt from this y'all and that's why I'm Presbyterian. <laughs> I'm serious Amen. because I'm not calling you to do anything. I'm not trying to do myself. I'm calling you to live in community and as a Presbyterian, I have to live in community because we have a team led leadership team leadership. I'm accountable to people. If I go off the hook, the right Reverend Dr. Irwin might come off the top rope and take me down over here. We answer. I'm just saying we all have to watch out that we don't have the at first kind of faith and fail to persevere. But let me get to the last barrier, all right? Verse 18. Jesus moves from the world to the flesh, the internal corruption of our own hearts. Listen. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. I'm going to put that on repeat. Hear that again. Cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, desire of riches. For other things, choke the word. Now, if I had to gauge by how much we collectively complain in here, I would say we're in great danger of the cares of the world. Choking out the word, griping about our kids, griping about our jobs, griping about what I think I deserve that I don't have yet. Griping about living in the city, griping about this, that, and the other thing. Cares of the world. Deceitfulness of riches. We talked about that last week. It's just another time Jesus is showing you, He speaks about it. Watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. Cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and desire for other things. I want you to see that all the things and opportunities that you have in your life, they're not benign. They're not harmless. They're forming you. And here's the crazy uphill battle that we as your pastors and leaders face. We get an hour in 45 minutes sometimes <laughs> to leave our mark on you to, to strike one for the kingdom on you. And then you spend the other how many hundred and sixty some hours being shaped in what way? Well, I don't know. But you have to take responsibility that God gets more and more voice in your life that you're being more and more formed by his word. And the only way is if you don't try to export the burden of your spiritual growth to your leaders, that you take personal responsibility and put together with us taking responsibility for a calling to you and our responsibility to you. And you have to put your way. You have to put yourself in the way of shepherding. You have to put yourself in the way of care. Look, I love you. I don't want to hear after the fact that you made some big life decision without the help of shepherding. That's backward. (laughs) You need help, and, and, and I need help. And that's why we don't make major decisions apart from our care and our community. We need the word to shape and fashion us. This idea of choking out the word, I think, is just a powerful image. It prevents fruitfulness. Notice that there was some sort of growth in this plant. You see that in the, in the parable? There's a, there's a type of growth, but it's not fruit-bearing growth. And we must measure by bearing fruit. You can grow emotionally without bearing fruit. You can grow vocationally without bearing fruit. There are all kinds of ways that we can grow without bearing fruit. But Jesus is interested in the fruit-bearing kind of growth. Understand that none of these responses characterized those who are truly in God's kingdom, which is the sobering reality of the passage. There's one one out of the four that describes those who belong to the kingdom, and it's the fruit-bearing kind. It's the fruit-bearing kind. Every commenter listening to it would have known. So if I can rephrase this, I just want you to watch out for the hard heart, the shallow heart, the cluttered heart. And try to cultivate the humble heart. That's the fourth soil. The humble heart receives the word. This is the tension that God's word puts you into. To think about this. To wrestle with it. God, if you're feeling uncomfortable, good. Because that's exactly how Jesus intended it to land on us. A holy discomfort that will not let us stay where we are. It's like the discomfort... Of, of a burr on the saddle of an animal. It drives them forward. The discomfort drives them forward. And that's sometimes the only way we'll make it forward. Is if he puts a burr in our saddle. If he gives you an itch, then nothing in this world can scratch. But let's look at the second point. We've talked about the tension. Now let's look at the text out. All of this is in the service of the bigger kingdom work that we must do together. Not separate. I don't want you to think about this in isolation from your place in our community. To be a believer is to be a Belonger. To be a part of this, and that's what God's vision is for us—that we're a fruit-bearing community. Think about the image of the field that is ripe with fruit, grain. That's that's what God wants, and that's it's to that end that He gives this parable, which ties into the initial image of the textile. Verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. 30 fold and 60 fold and 100 fold. Now this is the primary issue for Jesus. This is what we said. This is the question that Jesus cares to impress upon the people. This is the subject upon which he would have us reflecting fruitfulness. And the determinative marker of the appropriate response to the gospel message according to Jesus is fruit. It's not merely mental assent to the Christian faith. It's fruit. It's not just warm fuzzies and oh no but really I just love God. It's fruit. <laughs> it's not sentimentality. It's not sterile checking up the boxes on the religious to-do list. It's fruit. It's not mere activism and social do-gooding. It's fruit. And we have to be careful in discerning that we don't confuse the two. So how do we actually get an angle on what this fruit is? What is this fruit? Well, look, here's a principle of interpreting your Bible. Scripture helps you to interpret Scripture. So if you're not clear on what a passage means, then you can use other portions of Scripture to help you understand a particular passage. So I just want to cruise down through the New Testament writers and how they understood fruit. Listen to this. Listen to Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That kind of fruit. That's what Jesus wants. That kind of fruit. Look at Romans six. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end. Eternal life, sanctification, conformity to the likeness of Christ, becoming more and more like Jesus. So if you start to if you start to diagnose yourself, are you becoming more and more like Jesus? Are you Is more of the beauty of the life of Christ cropping up in you? Let's say that if you're becoming less committed, no. If you're becoming more selfish? No. If you're if you're dying more to the world and its desires? Yes. That's fruit. That's fruit. If you are if you're if the way you use your words is becoming more gentle and gracious. That's fruit. If you if you stop berating your kids and riding them all the time and you express more patience with them, In grace, that's that's fruit. This is the kind of fruit. Sanctification, Ephesians five, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Philippians chapter one, Paul prays for his friends. He says, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Here it is. Filled with the fruit, which is righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Righteousness. Are you becoming more righteous? Don't let the language of self-righteousness throw you off of your call to be righteous. God is holy. So we must be holiness, righteousness. That means we act in accord with the righteous, holy law of God, his expressed will for how we treat people. His expressed will for how we relate to the authorities. His expressed will for how we deal together in one another as a family. Hebrews chapter 13. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That's not just in private. That's in corporate worship. When we actually sing and praise like we believe he got out the grave. Like we actually worship and lift our hands to him as a sign that he's worthy, that we lift our voices, that we won't allow any praise to be trapped down here. We're going to let it loose because together we magnify and multiply that kind of fruit, bear fruit, bear fruit. This is just a start, y'all. Fruit is acts of service born of a heart of service. Fruit is generosity, acts of generosity born from a heart of generosity. It's seeking justice by faith because you've been justified by faith. Fruit is protecting the vulnerable in the street and the vulnerable in the womb. Fruit is cross-cultural love. Fruit is committed love for the church expressed in commitment to a church. You can't say I'm committed to the church, but there's no localized expression of that commitment. Because we're such an individualistic society, this may be one of the most important things I can impress upon you. If you're a, if you've been an attender here for a long time, I love you. I'm glad you're here, but I want to encourage you to either join this church as a formal member or find a church where you can. I love you, but non-committed presence in the church is not God's vision for the way we're supposed to be related to one another. Joseph Paul said there shouldn't be any loose stone in God's edifice. Let's commit to one another. This is nice. This is better. If you're going to be in a relationship, come on, tell the truth. Do you want this? You want someone who can just roll at any time? No, I want someone who did this. You got to stick with me for my better, which is less frequent, and my worse, which is more frequent. You dig what I'm saying? That's why membership. It's a covenant community. Fruit is concerned for the world and evangelism. God wants to take these separate strings and weave us together as his textile, as his family, as his people. But God's word must keep us in tension. So let us chop this up this week with one another in community. How's God laying you out in tension right now? And how are you aiming to hear with a mind to bear fruit? Kind of fruit described in the rest of scripture. Let's let's pray that God would do that great work in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to bear fruit, to hear your word, to accept it, and to bear fruit, and to judge ourselves according to the standard of your word and not our good intentions. Help us to lay ourselves bare before our community and invite them to speak truthfully into our lives so that we can see our error, so that we can see our need, So that we can stop playing around and get serious about life in this world before you and in community. We pray that you would let this word that has been preached go out with your blessing. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen.